The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you? Not too bad, Father. Yeah, good to see you. Yes, great to be back for another week. Uh, Father, you wanted to ask for some prayers tonight before we begin? Yes, for uh, two little children, actually. Uh, little Grace Magdalene. Uh, is uh, very ill in a hospital in the Columbus area and uh, needs our prayers for blood pressure and uh, another little child, a newborn baby, Noel Anastasia, is uh, ill in the hospital, hopefully. She's in uh, uh, the intensive care unit, but uh, we're praying that uh, all will go well for her. Doctors are striving mightily to uh, help her get better. I understand they're making some progress, so uh, our prayers will uh, certainly be there to help them too, help them and their doctors. You know, today is the feast of Saints Cosmos and Damien, two brothers in Egypt who were physicians and uh, and martyrs. So they shared not only the uh, relationship of blood, a profession, profession of uh, medicine, but profession of faith. Mm -hmm. You know, in dying for the faith. So we're asking Saints Cosmos and Damien to intercede for these little children. And, of course, there are many others who need um, our prayers, have asked for our prayers, and would uh, reward them by praying for us and even offering some of their crosses up for us, too. So we need to pray for them all. Absolutely. Thank you, Father. Uh, well, Father, on the last program, uh, we talked about several topics, but um, <clears throat> one thing in, in particular, and speaking of the, uh, the Synod, uh, Francis's Synodal Way and his Synodal Church now, um, there was mention of, uh, of a, an alleged apparition at Garabandal, an alleged prophecy that, that came from that, um, that revolved around this idea of, a, of a, some kind of great synod happening, and after this, this synod would somehow lead to the appearance of the Antichrist. So we, we briefly mentioned that on last week's program, <clears throat> and we, uh, we promised our viewers, I know for some time now we've had... Uh, Many of our viewers asking your, your thoughts, Father, on these uh, alleged apparitions at Garabandal in Spain. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we spent the past week doing a little bit of research on that, Father, and um, I believe we uh, wanted to, to, to focus on that tonight for, for tonight's program. Well, Tom, we did say that, and, uh, and for good reason. I mean, people have been mentioning this um, prophecy, as it were, um, from, uh, allegedly from uh, Garabandal. Uh, one of the seers there, uh, and I was uh, rather uh, puzzled by it because I didn't know much about Garabandal, never really had much interest in it. Uh, but supposedly uh, one of the seers had, had said something about a great synod, uh, which would usher in um, a great warning, right? A great warning to the world and some miracle. And uh, then... The, the story going around now is that it would usher in the, the reign of the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I did talk to some people who were, at least one time, very much devoted to Garabandal and informed about it. And I was told, no, there was, there was no talk about an Antichrist involved. Uh, so they're not sure where that came from. So right away, I mean, that cast a little bit of doubt to begin with on that whole idea of such a prophecy. But people are very concerned about it right now because, you know, Francis is in the middle of his synod on synodality, right? In which he wants to actually uh, create a new church, his own synodal church, um, which is not the Catholic Church. It's meant to replace the Catholic Church once and for all and to bury the Catholic Church. And uh, so people are wondering, well, if Francis is called the Synod and it's going on right now and he's going to have like the Super Synod, considering the, uh, the you know, transforming um, the Church of Christ into Francis' Church of the Synod, um, is this not some sort of a prelude to becoming the Antichrist? That's what people are asking now. That's why they're relating this to Gary Vandal. But Tom, um, you yourself have, have done a bit of research about this this last week, I know, as I have. And um, you, uh, you've come up with some fairly interesting information. I wonder what your, what your thoughts are on the subject. What have, you, what have you found out about this? The whole question of the apparitions at Garabandal, uh, even apart from this prophecy of a synod and a, an antichrist. Well, I can say, Father, I'm definitely no expert on the situation. I know there, there are many who are... Uh have spent a lot of time researching this. I've gone very, very in depth into this matter. I've spoken with, with some of them. Um, learned, learned Did you give a little background uh, as to when they happened and who was involved? In yeah. Uh, so the apparitions, uh, alleged apparitions, actually, they uh, they they began in 1961, uh, and I think the the name of the town was San Sebasti um, Garabandal in in Spain. It's a very very small village in Spain. I think only. Several hundred people actually lived in the village mm -hmm. at the time, but apparently these started in 1961. Um, I think they they continued for four or five years, and um, apparently this was uh, almost almost a daily occurrence. I, I understand there were over 2,000 apparent uh, supposed apparitions that took place um, with with four principal seers. I, I believe actually four four girls, four young girls in this town of Garavandal. And um, I, my understanding is the whole uh, the whole thing started uh, one day when the four girls were actually stealing apples from their teacher's orchard, and uh, apparently they heard this great thunder, sound of thunder, and were kind of just forced down to their knees, and uh, apparently by some invisible force, and they saw what they claimed to be Saint Michael the Archangel um, appeared to them, and so this is how the whole thing started um, when they were in the act of, of stealing apples from their teacher. So I think right off the bat, not um, not the best of, of circumstances. Um, <clears throat> but um, you know, you mentioned Father. There, there are many who are, who are great uh, devotees of this. And my my question, since since I, I first heard about this, is well, what exactly are they devoted to? Because in watching uh, some of the, the videos that I've seen, reading some of the articles, and even talking to those who, who've investigated this. Um, I've never really seemed to come to an understanding of what exactly the message of Garabandal is supposed to be. Um, you know, I think if you were to ask any any traditional Catholic, you know, what what was the message of Our Lady of Fatima, they could tell you right off the bat, well, pray the rosary, prayer and penance, there's this great chastisement of a, a great world war that's coming, so pray the rosary. Um, but with Garabandal, everything I've, I've read, everything I, I've, I've heard and seen, um, 
it seems there's not one central message. It's kind of all over the place, just these very vague, general, uh, general wishy-washy type things like uh, be good, you know, pray, pray, for, pray for bad people. Um, you need to be good, though, and live a good life. You need to uh, think about the passion of our Lord. You need to visit Him in, in church. You need to pray. You need to do penance. There's a, you know, there, there's some, there's a, a cup of uh, great chastisement that's filling up, and now it is filled up, and it's overflowing. Um, there are there are bad priests in the church who are working working evil in the church, and uh, from there we go to a great warning, uh, this great illumination of everyone's conscience, and uh, from there there's going to be a great miracle, and um, so it seems oh, we are just kind of all all over the place, and and throughout these these. 2,000 or something apparitions that, that apparently took place. Um, you read about the content of them, and it's a lot of it is very mundane, very trivial things, such as uh, in one of them, supposedly St. Michael the Archangel compliments the children's teeth, uh, how, they, how they have good teeth, I think compliments their, their clothing, their shoes at some point. Uh, well, I understand that St. Michael was complimenting the children on their teeth, their teeth, which they then showed to him, displayed to him. <laughs> And that he then displayed his teeth, and uh, and showed them what wonderful teeth he had. That's peculiar, right? That doesn't sound like something in any at least like no, a good angel. Exactly right it. away, as it struck you, that is that is really bizarre. Mm. <clears throat> but uh, there's an enormous amount of information in a book called Garavandal, The Village Speaks, and that's um, a little hard to come by these days, and rather expensive. But I understand that that is a single most comprehensive volume about all this. Yeah. And um, uh, so, but I, I'm sorry, go ahead here. What you're saying is interesting. One thing that struck me, by the way, was, and I, I think you probably saw that, the, the photographs showing the girls contorted. Yeah. Uh, contorted in such a way. The first thing I thought of when I saw the photographs was uh, a scene, scene from the exorcism of Emily Rose. Exactly. exactly. With, uh, <laughs> the girls, you know, twisted backwards and yes. staring straight up. And, yeah. um, you know, at Fatima, I mean, when the children saw the Blessed Mother, she was standing before them. Yeah. And they actually could see her. But there was one scene of the four children, and they're looking in different directions, which is peculiar. But a couple of them, at least, are looking bent over all the way and looking straight up, you know. Mm -hmm. um, again, I mean, this struck me as being very peculiar. Mm -hmm. and, and I think one of the, uh, one of the, the most, I don't know, pr prominent uh, things that you always hear when, when people speak of Garibaldal is how these uh, alleged seers, they, they, they would have their, um, yeah, in this kind of contorted um, position with their face pointing upwards towards the sky, but they're walking backwards. Um, after doing this, I think there's actual actual video footage mm -hmm. of this happening where they um, apparently are, are, I think, holding holding a rosary and um, apparently praying the rosary, but uh, they're kind of have their 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 heads contorted back up towards the sky and they're walking backwards, mm -hmm. um, which um, I don't know. There's 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 some <laughs> speculation that this is this is um, somehow something demonic. Apparently, um, Aleister Crowley wrote something about. Uh, about um, the relationship between doing things backwards, and mm -hmm. uh, I think he even encouraged his followers to learn how to write backwards and walk backwards. And, As and... a form of homage to Satan. You know? Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, there, there are some uh, who evidently still, uh, you know, have, have put some stock in the apparitions of Garapandal uh, being real, who actually do point out the satanic involvement. There's a demonic involvement yeah. 
um, I understand that uh, the little children would actually jump down from the choir loft in the church. Just jump down from the choir loft. Uh, uh, that's odd. Um, and supposedly Our, Our Lady told uh, Conchita and, and maybe the others too, now don't be afraid about by what's going to happen. Don't be afraid, okay? I'm going to leave you. Don't be afraid. So then supposedly Our Lady disappeared and they were enveloped in a very thick fog and they heard the voice this uh, satanic voice, come, follow me, follow me, follow right. me, right? Yeah. And that is really bizarre, to say the least. I mean, there are, there are things that are associated with uh, Garabandal that would be unthinkable with regard to Fatima. Yeah. In fact, somebody pointed out that it's odd that the, the very year after the, the third secret of Fatima was supposed to have been revealed, and John the 23rd resealed the envelope, uh, put it back in the file saying it's, it's necessary not to disturb the people with this information. The very year after that, the 1960, these apparitions of Garabandal start, which are almost, uh, I mean, you know, the, the message of penance, <clears throat> the message of prayer, right? The message of chastisement and so on. And yet, events surrounding uh, these things are not, not just echoes of Fatima, but almost like a caricature mm -hmm. of Fatima. Thousands of, like 2,000 reported apparitions, the children walking or even running backwards, children racing, uh, even the, the young men of the village and beating them to the site of apparitions, and then the contortions and... Um, there, there are a number of other very peculiar um, things <clears throat> that would make, I think, make one believe there is something above the natural happening here. <clears throat> There's something unnatural happening, but it's not supernatural, it's preternatural. Yeah. And that's the worrisome thing. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, I, I Saw again, saw some of the videos again, you know, saw some favorable, saw some. Well, I didn't see anything really unfavorable. I saw the unfavorable, the favorable videos about uh, really, really trying very hard to make this as you know, just as what should I say, acceptable as possible, yeah, for Catholics and, and very, uh, very, very uh, ingratiating. Um. Even there, even there, there were things mentioned, though, that were very, I thought, very troublesome when they were trying to put the best, best face on it. But as I say, uh, this one video in particular from a, by a gentleman, uh, sounded like an Englishman, but I wasn't sure. Uh, Miles Marie, I think. Uh, Miles Marie, I means soldier of Mary. In which he said he personally believes in some of the <clears throat> apparitions, but there are things that he found disturbing. Five things, he said. And one thing in particular, the first thing he starts with is the presence of the demonic, which is very clearly, which he says Conchita even conceded that there was the presence of the demonic. And um, uh, he, um, I mean, I, I thought it was uh, well done. It wasn't a, uh, a hit piece as such, yeah. but it was kind of a, an expression of wonderment about these these 
problems, these issues. Yeah. But one thing that was brought up, I don't know if it was brought up in that particular, that particular video, I think probably the video that was the most pro-Garavandal ended by saying at the last so-called apparition uh, that Our Lady uh, appeared to Conchita and the child was all smiles, it says. And then um, Our Lady said, because my messages have not been heeded, this is my last apparition. <clears throat> and she said something about, <coughs> I mean, chiding Conchita uh, because she was saying, you need to visit the church more and spend more time with the Blessed Sacrament. Why are you not doing that? Why are you giving into your laziness? So here we have like a, the ultimate apparition when the apparition is telling the head seer, Conchita, you're lazy, even you are not hearing my you know, calls to visit the, the Blessed Sacrament. And then she says, you know, uh, what is important is that your hands be full of good works. Um, that your hands be full of good works, uh, especially toward your fellow men. And then she says to Conchita, your hands are empty. And that's, that's the end of it. Yeah. That's how it ended. Your hands are empty. Yeah. Like there's nothing good in you, your hands that you've done. That's very peculiar to, to end the whole series that way. That alone would make me wonder what's going on here, let alone all the running backwards, the contortions. Mm. Um, I mean, they, they, they became very heavy. They couldn't be right. moved, right? Uh, they spoke languages they never learned. Um, I mean, these are, these are, again, classic signs of diabolical possession. Yeah. So I'm just saying that these are worrisome signs. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my, my, my traditional Catholics, I mean, why would a traditional Catholic layman, do you think, be drawn to... You mentioned you didn't see the central message there, mm. but why would traditional Catholics be drawn to this right now, do you think? Well, I think just in general, as you said, there seems to be something that is, uh, you know, whether you call it unnatural or preternatural or, or something. Uh, and I think humans, by, by nature, we're attracted to things like that. We always, you know, if you, uh, any of the, you see all the exorcism movies and things like that that are always very mm. popular because we're always attracted, I think, to anything that... Uh, we think is, is you know, uh, above our, our nature, outside of the realm of, of, of natural occurrences. So I think people are, are just kind of, in general, drawn towards that. But um, um, I, 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 don't, I don't know, Father. Do you I, think I, it's because they relate to the present time and what's going on in the church and so on? They think this is some kind of answer or guidepost for it? Possibly, somehow. But as I said in um, my... my research on it, I, I can't say that I found any kind of really one great theme or any kind of practical um, steps that, that you would take to, uh, to, to, to make things better. There didn't really seem to be anything edifying at all mm -hmm. that came from this, nothing that would make you become a, a better Catholic. No, but I, I, people have brought this up yeah. recently, and I think it's, um, you know, maybe it's because they say, okay, synod, okay, there's a synod, there's mention of a synod. And we know a synod's going on, and a synod on synodal manner with Francis, yeah. and they talk about the synod is going to usher in uh, like a great um, warning, a great chastisement, a, the, the coming of the Antichrist. I mean, I can see certain traditional Catholics thinking, aha, this is confirmation of what we, see, what we think is happening today. 
I guess that's what the thought is. I noticed back way back when, when I was even before I entered the seminary, which was uh, a long time ago, <laughs> about fifty years ago now, at least. Uh, actually, fifty-five years ago, probably. Um, in fact, it was exactly fifty-five years ago. Come <laughs> yeah. to think of it, to the month um, that there were so many Catholics. Conservative Catholics at the time who were who were looking for these apparitions everywhere. Yeah. The little pebble here, uh, this this apparition, the reported apparition there, reported apparition here and there, and they were they were it's so they were grasping for something. Yeah. They were drowning in the liberalism that was setting into the church, and they were looking for something to pin their hopes and. and trust in. Yeah. But it, I thought it was really excessive and I thought it was very dangerous yeah. to be running after all the Bayside, uh, right, and so on. I mean, here, here there were so many hundreds of people who were enthralled <clears throat> by Bayside, Veronica Lucan and these so-called apparitions. And you'd see these le newsletters come out about that. And um, I, I was particularly edified once when I was reading the newsletter from Bayside, which I didn't do very often. But I, I read that uh, Veronica said she saw a symbol of the Blessed Trinity in the sky. And there were people around her were pressing her, well, please tell us what it likes. Tell us what it looks like. Tell us, you know, describe it to us. Mm -hmm. And Veronica said, well, I can't really describe it to you. I can't really describe it to you. And finally she said, well, it looks like the Ballantine beers, beer symbol. <laughs> Good. Okay, well, that's very edifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you want to go see what the Trinity, you know, manifests itself, it's a sign in the sky, uh, go get yourself a bottle, a bottle of Ballantine beer and take a look at that symbol. Uh, I thought that this is somewhat less than a supernatural, maybe preternatural, but, mm -hmm. uh, but there were so many other peculiar things about it that, you know, I mean, <clears throat> get rosaries, turning colors, and and it, it took on the air almost of a, of a circus, uh, yeah. a sideshow almost. And this is not uh, how Our Lady does things. No, there, there were other, um, other concerning things in, in regards to, to Garabandal as well. You, you mentioned rosaries. Um, I remember one of the particular um, instances with, with, uh, with these alleged apparitions where Our Lady um, supposedly told the children, do not bring... Uh, any kind of sacramentals, do not bring, bring, bring blessed rosaries or anything like this because she wanted to bless them herself, mm -hmm. um, which raises a lot of questions because Our Lady is not a, not a priest. I don't know if she can give her priestly well, it, blessings, but, but, but yeah, you would think right. who, who would be affected by a sacramental, something that was blessed and holy, who would not want to be confronted well, with something like that? Well, what is blessed the hands of the priest is blessed, blessed by God. That's the point. The priest gives his, not his own blessing, right. but the blessing from the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Right. And the lady says, no, 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 no. Yeah. Now bring the, I want to bless these things yeah. myself. Yeah. Yeah. That is very peculiar. So they would, they would keep blessed religious items away um, mm -hmm. because... They would keep actual blessed religious items away. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, that's very, very odd. Yeah, that's, but um, they're um, one of the, the supposed miracles, which was supposedly caught, uh, caught on film. Um, although if you, you watch the film, very... <laughs> Very, um, not, not very clear at all. But um, there was the, this um, apparent Eucharistic type miracle 
where uh, supposedly St. Michael the Archangel gave Conchita Holy Communion uh, by placing it on her tongue and only the host was, was visible. So apparently all, all of these, um, these uh, her, her fellow uh, villagers were there watching, um, seeing what would happen. She's kind of wrapped in, in ecstasy and all of a sudden they see a host appear on her tongue out of nowhere. And uh, this was supposedly this great, great miracle where St. Michael the Archangel uh, gave this to her. But I read um, in, in an article, I didn't, I didn't um, actually see any kind of documentation and she's verified anywhere, but apparently um, at some point later on, Conchita admitted uh, to the, I guess, the, the parish priest that she had actually stolen a host from the church um, and placed this this host on the on the, the roof of her mouth and then opened her mouth and let it fall down onto her tongue mm-hmm. and supposedly appeared that way. But um, again, I didn't see any kind of actual documentation. Just um, read this in an, maybe an article or two. But right. if this is actually a case um, for stealing a host, hope. <laughs> Hopefully not, not a well, consecrated house. I, I don't know that she could have taken it to the tabernacle. I mean, yeah. it's not... <clears throat> but one could easily, I think, take one from the sacristy. But, but even still, very... Uh, well, yeah, I just, I, I'd have a hard time imagining how someone could actually pull that off. Yeah. Myself. Yeah. So, as you say, I mean, you read these things out there, and you people can type anything and post it, mm-hmm. and you just wonder what what is believable and what is not. Yeah. But evidently, there are so many peculiar things that are verifiable, that are reported and even acknowledged by the, by Conchita and uh, others. You know that that give reason for pause. It just seems to be kind of a mimicry of Fatima. After the third secret was not revealed in '60, it seems that these came along, and. I mean, e- even the idea that in the church there are priests and bishops that are bad. I mean, uh, St. Pius X issued the encyclical Vashendi 10 years before Our Lady appeared at Fatima. And um, he said, that, uh, warned about the modernists, and he warned that they were in the very veins, heart and veins of the church. So, um, and he indicated that there were clergy involved. So, I mean, the, the idea that there were priests and bishops who would um, lead the faithful astray and be on the path to perdition. Again, it was not something something new. Um, I wonder if Blessed Katharina Embrick even kind of indicated this. And there were other, other prophecies from the church history that would indicate that these things were true. Not that the children would necessarily know these things. What concerns me, though, is that from what I've seen of the photographs and the footage, uh, video footage, what I've heard, uh, things that were reported about that the children said, things that were quoted of the children, I, I just uh, have a hard time believing it's something purely natural. Yeah. Uh, but I also have a harder time believing it's something supernatural. I just wonder why, uh, you know, if it's if it's preternatural that it would not be something from heaven, it would be something from the other place. And as you mentioned, as we, I mentioned earlier, somebody else has brought this up. There were instances where even Conchita, as they say, admitted or conceded that, yes, there was diabolical influence. Yeah. Strange, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, at points, at some point. So, um, I, I don't know. So when it comes to get back to the main point here, okay. I mean, we're just basically going skimming the surface here. Um, uh, I, I understand that the book 
uh, Garabandal, the village speaks, has a lot of testimony. It's like 350 pages, about 350 pages of um, testimony, photographs, and uh, reports, and so on. And um, so I understand that that is really worth having for those who are really interested in it. I know there must be listening some real great devotees of Garabandal, um, but obviously there are those who are uh, very much warning against it, too. We've probably heard from both. Yes, right. Um, the, the pointed question here is, so, was there in fact a prophecy about some coming great synod that would uh, bring about a, a warning, worldwide warning? Uh, the warning of, spoken of at Garavandal was that everybody would know his own sins and then be called upon to repent, right? And then if they didn't, there would be a great chastisement, right? And this particular uh, story going around now is that this would usher and pave the way for the coming of the Antichrist. Uh, for a traditional Catholic who, who sees what's going on in the church and realizes that St. Pius X's warnings against modernism uh, we're, we're real and urgent, and we believe we're seeing the ravages of modernism right now. Um, this could be very credible. Um, and it, in fact, I mean, I do believe that there is a connection between Francis's syn synod on the synodality and his actually pledge to and his drive to, to create this new false church, right? And I believe that that is all ordered toward the coming of the Antichrist. Yeah. And I don't need any supposed prophecy of Garavandal or anywhere else to, to see that. Right. Okay. Um, uh, it, it, it seems to me to be rather patent. Maybe there are traditional Catholics out there who think that they can use this supposed prophecy of Garavandal to convince people of what's happening, who otherwise would be oblivious to it. I, I don't know. But I would just say, we don't need the prophecy of Garabandal to realize. Uh, if, even if it were true, we wouldn't need it. Um, but I would say that one should be very wary of this, uh, because there are matters involved that are really striking departures from, uh, let's say, the other apparitions of Our Lady, and uh, that really do, um, I think, I think are dangerous, dangerous to get into. Well, Father, I'll just mention one last thing. Um, and, and researching this, we, uh, I think we both came across the, this, um, what they, at Garbantal, what they called the night, or maybe the night's plural, oh, the, the night of, of screams. Yeah, the night of screams, where apparently these, um, these maybe it was even all, all four of the seers were. Well, I heard there were two the first night, and then Conchita, Conchita joined yeah. it and made it three yeah. the next night. Yeah, so, so for the, these two nights, I guess they were in the, the woods of, of Garbantal, just in these, these kind of contorted positions that was the norm for these uh, apparitions, and they... Um, were just screaming uncontrollably, um, so loud enough to be heard throughout the entire village. Um, absolutely scared to death everyone in the village, and this only stopped when every single person in the village united their prayers, begging our Lord to make this stop. 
-hmm. and then it actually stops um, okay. after that. So I don't know what could possibly be edifying about a, uh, a Knights of, of Screams, but um, I think anyone would, would tell you this is something that, that seems very in line with, with, the, with demonic. There is something very, very uh, sinister going on there. No doubt about it. Yeah. So uh, I think if one researches that, and something else that comes to mind too is uh, that there were prophecies made um, about a, a young boy growing up to become a priest. He died. He didn't become a priest. About uh, Joey uh, Lo Mangino, Mangino. Would, he would have uh, his eyes, his eyesight restored. He had, he had gone blind, and he died without. That's right. The prophecy was that he was going to have his eyesight restored. Joey Longino died just a few years ago, I guess, mm -hmm. without having his eyesight restored. Yep. Uh, and there are a number of prophecies like that that just never happened, that never yep. took place. Yep. So um, this is very, very dubious, to say, to say the least. But uh, again, as I say, there was nothing of value said at... Uh, Garabandal, nothing of value said there that we hadn't already learned from Our Lady of Fatima. Right. Um, Our Lady of Lourdes, Our Lady of uh, Our Lady of La Salette, you know. But there was a lot of other things involved that were very, very sinister, mm -hmm. even even diabolical. So I, I certainly wouldn't recommend anybody uh, that they get involved in it and to be looking for the fulfillment of prophecies because of it, yeah. when there are already a handful of prophecies that never took place and never will. Right. Well, there was one, one, one prophecy that a priest who uh, came to Garavandal was convinced it was real, was filled with happiness, was on his way home, and, uh, and died. But um, uh, they had, the children had prophesied, or at least Conchita herself had prophesied, that he would later be exhumed and his body would be found incorrupt. When the great miracle happened, well, the Jesuits did work, transfer the bodies from the cemetery where they were laid, and found that the only remains intact were his uh, the bones of his skeleton. There was no incorruption uh, anywhere evident. <laughs> Nothing was incorrupt. Um, so again, I mean, the prophecy not only unfulfilled but the opposite. Yeah. took place of what was prophesied. So, so to be waiting around for more prophecies um, based upon the track record of failed prophecies, I think would be a big mistake. And the, I think the devil can use these things to shape people's faith yeah. and make them, you know, believe so much in this that they depend upon them. They depend upon these things, and when they depend upon them and they found out they don't happen, that it, it doesn't pan out as they'd hoped or expected, that it shakes their faith. That's what I'm afraid of. Yeah. Well, Father, anything else you'd like to add on uh, Garbondal before we change subjects? Say, uh, Our Lady told us what we need to know at Fatima. Yeah. And uh, that should be our focus because the church, has, the true church has ruled on Fatima that there is nothing contrary to the faith expressed in Fatima and that it is uh, certainly consonant with the faith and is worthy of belief. The church will never impose a private revelation as a matter of divine uh, apostolic faith right. on anyone. So it's possible and permissible for someone to say, I don't believe that there were true apparitions of Our Lady of Fatima. 
and somebody could actually still be a Catholic. They'd have to answer to Our Lady, <laughs> I think, though. Um, but um, um, still, if the Church pronounces that something is worthy of belief, um, that should be taken seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Church has never said anything like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought Caravandal. But someone might say, well, of course not. Look, Vatican II came along, and the last thing Vatican II would approve of is a statement that many priests and bishops are leading people to perdition. Mm. Well, I understand that. But uh, still, we do not have the endorsement. The fact is, we do not have the endorsement of the Church for a Garabandal. So uh, when they excuse it and say, well, the Nova Sarda would never approve it anyway, and say, well, maybe not. But we, the fact is that the True Church never did uh, speak on this subject. Well, actually, back in the early 1960s, a bishop did investigate. He said he didn't find anything contrary to the faith, at least in the early, in the early years. Mm -hmm. But nor did he find any sign of anything supernatural. Yeah. At that time, okay, that was, I think, probably one of the first pronouncements about it. Yeah. So, anyway, yep. concentrate on Fatima, do what Our Lady said in Fatima. If there's anything good in it's already in Fatima, and we should find it there. Okay, very good, thank you for that, Father, I appreciate it. Um, we also wanted to uh, discuss another topic. We had a couple emails in regards to your sermon. Uh, that you gave this past Sunday here at Immaculate well, Conception and Church. Uh, no, Father, I actually, um, that was a very, very great sermon, on, uh, mostly on, on the subject of humility. And uh, you talked about... I'm very proud of this sermon. <laughs> good, Father, good. Um, actually, we... actually, quite the opposite. They say the preacher preaches to himself. Okay. And uh, I, I think that's probably true in this case. I see. <laughs> well, and and talking about um, humility, Father, you you um, you contrasted it with with pride, and one of our uh, viewers um, wanted you to uh, explain a little bit deeper because in your sermon you mentioned how pride causes insanity or madness, and uh, so one of our viewers was wondering if you could expound upon that a little bit how pride causes insanity or madness. Okay. Well. Um, yes, I'd be glad to uh, try to expatiate uh, modestly about that, humbly. Um, uh, madness, insanity, you can kind of sum up as being be out of touch with reality. And this is something that's, I mean, this is not a clinical definition, okay? But I think it's a common sense practical definition. That when someone is out of contact with reality, and they're kind of in their own little imaginary world of delusions. That, in my book, is insanity. Insanity comes from the, you know, not, not healthy, not healthy, not mentally healthy. It's a uh, mental illness, okay? And um, our, our human nature was created by God um, in his own image, we have immortal souls with the power to know what is true and to love what is good and to enjoy what is beautiful. We express that by what we call the three transcendentals. The true, the good, and the beautiful are the object of our thoughts. That's what makes us like God. We can 
we can uh, find ultimately the true, the good, and the beautiful in God himself. And God designed us to find the true and the good and the beautiful, truth and goodness and beauty in himself forever in heaven. That's everlasting life. Well, our minds are meant to be in contact with the reality that God created. Or even, even through the body, the senses of the body are meant to be in contact with the material reality. We're in contact with the spiritual realities, the, the, the intangibles like justice and mercy and things like that that make up the warp and woof of our thoughts and the things that are really important to us. But even the bodies that God made to unite to our souls are meant to be in contact with the reality of this world, the material realities of the world too. And we can take these sensible experiences we have of the things of the world through our senses. We can then, um, in our minds, abstract from them and actually think in terms of essences. Again, reality, realities. The, uh, that's how we're supposed to be. That's how God designed us, okay? The first great break from that, though, was the rebellion against God uh, to Noah's original sin when uh, Lucifer tempted Eve by saying, God knows that if you uh, defy him by eating of this fruit, that you, your, your eyes will be opened. You will be as gods. You will basically determine your own reality, your own right from wrong, your own true and false. Uh, you will be as gods, basically. Uh, and um, not be subject. The whole idea is there. It's the same temptation he continues to address to each and every one of us. You know, be your own God. You don't have to put up with this. It's the temptation to which he succumbed himself, right? Uh, um, I will not serve, and he said, I will place my throne in the highest heavens, right? Um, <clears throat> so anyway, when I say that uh, pride is insanity, it, uh, it, it basically comes down to the idea that when we are proud, we are not in touch with reality. And pride, of course, is the root of sin. And sin is absolutely the rebellion against reality, against God's sovereignty, um, against God's majesty, against his, his goodness. Sin is a rejection of all of that reality. Now, you know, perhaps it becomes clearer the connection between pride and insanity, when you realize what humility is, because humility is not the tendency to think ill of yourself and to despise yourself and put yourself down. Uh, humility is a virtue. And as a virtue, it, it has to be founded in reality. Something right, something good. And humility is ultimately the, the virtue that enables us to have a just estimation, a correct estimation of who we are before God and among our fellow men. We see exactly uh, who we are, and it's a matter of truthfulness with ourselves and acknowledging this. It's not a matter of denying uh, whatever good is in us. I mean, even the very good, the fundamental good of existence, the fact that we exist is a good, but it doesn't come from us. It comes from God. And humility does not consist in wanting to annihilate ourselves. That would be the utmost ingratitude toward God and lack of appreciation to him. 
humility uh, actually calls upon us to treasure the gift of existence and the gift of life that God gave us, but always to acknowledge God as the giver and to be grateful to him and to humbly acknowledge him as the source of our existence, the, the source of our, life, our lives, and the purpose of our lives. That's what humility is. It's not a matter of denying. It's not even a matter of denying whatever talents and abilities we have. It's a matter, rather, of appreciating them in such a way that we attribute them to God, his goodness, and given to us for his service. That's true humility. The prime example of humility is our Blessed Lady. And uh, that manifested itself in an absolute, well, you know, Satan said, I will not serve. And a Blessed Mother's answer was, I will serve. I'm the handmaid of the Lord. Absolutely. You know, my entire devotion is to uh, not even submit or conform my will to the will of God. Mary's will was uniform with the will of God. It was just totally and completely devoted to God's will. And that's precisely why she could become the mother of, of God. And she was so completely at the service of God's will. That's humility. Uh, so humility is not really so much a matter of going around beating oneself up. It's a matter of admitting uh, and even ruining one's own weaknesses and sinfulness and so on. Yes, even as we appreciate the good that is in us that God has placed there. So we realize that we ourselves have come into the world with original sin and have, have uh, in a sense, seconded original sin many, many times by our own actual sins. And the more we love God, the humbler we are, the more we regret those sins, the more we repent of them. Um, but that does not in any way diminish our uh, acknowledgement and appreciation for whatever good God has placed in us. We recognize that whatever good is in me has come from God, and I appreciate that, and I respect that. I love that. Our Lord says, love your neighbor as yourself for a reason. He wants you to love yourself. He wants you to love what he has given you and what he's, the good that he's put in you, invested in you. Um, so the great saints, the holier they got, the, the lesser they seemed in their own eyes. Um, the holier they became, the less holy they seemed to themselves. Because the holier they became, the more they understood, as far as possible, the more they appreciated the greatness and the goodness and the holiness of God. And that diminished them in their own eyes, you know. Um, but it filled them with gratitude. Um, now, going back to the virtue of humility, humility being the just estimation of our place and uh, the proper respect for ourselves and the gifts that God has given to us and the good that he's invested in us, that's what keeps us grounded in reality. That's the reality of who we are. It's an, and it's an acknowledgement of who we actually are in the eyes of God. And um, pride distorts that. Pride distorts our understanding of who we are. Pride takes us out of, as it were, the, the service of God. Pride, um, in a sense, rejects God's sovereignty over us. And like Satan says, I will not serve, I will serve myself instead of God. To the extent that pride, therefore, clouds 
and, and even disconnects us from the reality of who we actually are. That's insanity. And the more proud we are, the more insane we are. The more disconnected we are with the reality of who we are in relationship with God, the relationship with each other. And you can see that. Pride actually induces a person to make a fool of himself. Uh, no matter how smart he is, he's not as smart as he think he is, thinks he is. No matter how clever he is, he's not as smart, as clever as he thinks he is. And so he overestimates his own um, abilities, his own powers, uh, his own goodness, uh, whatever you want to call it. He, he, and he puts too much stock in himself. And inevitably, he's going, to, he's going to come to ruin, rack and ruin. The proud person is arrogant. The proud person is overbearing. The proud person is um, just very cynical toward others. Uh, the proud person demands the adoration of others. He's very boastful. Satan does all this. So in other words, the pride makes us like Satan himself. And inevitably, this leads to ruin. Uh, when one tries to be God, he finds out, in short order, he makes a very, very poor God. And so that, for some people, you'd hope that would be humbly, humbling, humbling. But for most very proud people, it's not humbling at all. It's humiliating. And you can always tell pride because somebody is very ambitious about accomplishing great things, making a name for himself, uh, as St. Paul says, making him out something to be something, whereas he is nothing. And um, then he gets a re rebuked um, or meets with failure or catastrophe. What does a proud person do? He becomes completely downcast. And he becomes completely downcast, totally depressed. And he goes to the other extreme of, oh, woe is me, woe is me, you know. Um, and um, he, he becomes totally consumed with self-pity. Mm -hmm. And that's a real characteristic of Satan, too. He's consumed with self-pity. And whether he's at the one extreme of sort of manic, of, of thinking himself like uh, godlike unto himself, and uh, totally independent and able to do... Uh, um, uh, whatever he wishes, right? Um, or whether he's at the other extreme, um, being so downcast and crushed by failure. Either way, it's pride that's doing that to him. Um, if his pride is not served, then he becomes a, uh, a ball of misery and uh, just a, a pit of despair. Um... So um, we have to be very, very wary of going either way. Um, but the humble man, you know, when he, first of all, he's not overbearing. He's not arrogant. Uh, he may come across that way, but he's not really, and it, it eventually shows. Um, the humble man is not uh, puffed up. Uh, is, well, what does is, what is St. Paul say about anger? Not, he's not, and uh, charity, he's not provoked to anger. Um, when the humble man does, um, let's say, embarrass himself or, or goof up, 
<clears throat> he's the first to, to laugh at himself and to think, well, Lord, what can we expect from dust and ashes, you know? Um, even when he sins, if he sins gravely. Again, he doesn't get so despondent that he, he's tempted to despair on the one hand and um, or tempted to presumption on the other. Uh, that the humble man uh, actually accepts that as being you know, kind of the course of things would be natural for him. And he looks to God for the remedy. That's why I say that pride so distorts our own self-image that it actually takes us out of, out of contact with reality. And we're living a life of illusion and delusion. And uh, that is going to be the source of an enormous amount of trouble for the proud person. He's going to end badly. And importantly, he's going to hurt a lot of people uh, living out his pride. God will try to humble him. But again, that is to rescue him from his pride and call him back to a certain sense of his own humble reality. But all too often, the pride rebels against the the humble the humbling you know experience and really just reacts very badly in feeling humiliated and resentful and rebels against uh, being humbled right? he resists being humble um, a prime example today we we have education so-called higher education and those who have had the uh, unfortunate experience of uh, seeking higher education in our modern uh, uh, college system will often talk about the philosophy that is rife there. It was rampant among the professors in our system of higher education is a philosophy of existentialism or a philosophy, some philosophy derived from existentialism. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're taking a course in philosophy or psychology or anything like that. Uh, the mentality of existentialism is everywhere. And that idea is everybody has his own truth. Because right. everybody has his own, his own experience. And existentialism is built upon the idea that you kind of create yourself from your own experience. Since everybody has his own experience, everybody's creating himself somewhat differently. Everybody has his own unique experience. And for you, your experience is your reality. And so each one of us is going through life having his own personal experiences that are unique to himself. And from his own experiences, he's constructing his own reality. In other words, he's deciding for himself what is true or false for him. He has his truth. He's deciding what is true, what is good or bad for him. And it's all about him or her, what is good or for him or bad for him, what is good for her or bad for her. And it all depends on what makes them happy. If it makes them happy and it feeds their ego and makes them feel good about themselves, it's true. If it makes them happy and feeds their ego and makes them feel good about themselves, then it's good. And whatever doesn't do that is meaningless, except whatever is against that and makes them sad and not feel good about themselves is bad. Okay, and has to be resisted. And uh, so you have, you know, college students who, who will actually tell you, well, you have your truth and I have mine. You say abortion is bad, 
It's bad for you. I think abortion is good. It's good for me. We have our own reality. You go live your truth. Keep your truth out of my truth, okay? And uh, because my truth is what it is, this is my experience, this is my world, this is my reality. Now tell me, if you had that idea, if you really believe that and live that, what would that make of each individual person who is basically building a world of his own imagining around himself? Well, it would attempt to make him a, a god unto himself. He would be a god of his own little world. Right? Yeah. But when you're a god of your own little world, you're delusional. Yeah. And so there's no real objective reality, okay? No. Except wokeness, I guess, nowadays, they would say. is the only objective reality. But the point is, you are basically living in a world that you've created for your own, your own experiences, your own emotions, your own feelings, and so on. It's all about your feelings. And um, you're insane. Yeah. You're out of touch with reality. The only reality you know, the only reality you could even acknowledge is the reality of your own personal feelings, your own personal interests. And um, serving yourself. Um, whatever makes you feel good yeah. is your reality. This is insanity. Yeah. Um, everybody is a licensed, card-carrying, insane person who subscribes to this mentality and their legion mm. right now. Father, I've often read that. By the way, the only salvation from that is our faith. Yeah. Faith is the only thing. True faith is the only thing that can save you from that. Mm. Even I, Lucifer fell into that. Yeah. Delusion. Yeah. I've, uh, I've read many times, Father, that there's um, kind of an, an, an inseparable bond between humility and truth. Mm -hmm. um, where they can essentially be equated in the sense that uh, he, if, if truth is that which is, well, humility is, is simply acknowledging that, simply acknowledging that the truth. And uh, so, of course, that doesn't preclude any kind of, um, you know, you can acknowledge the good that, that, uh, that you see in yourself or that you see in others as long as you, you know, attribute that, that to God. Well, because Tom, that you is know, the truth. Like what you just said, I think, makes perfect sense. I mean, truth is the virtue that enables you to admit reality and see it for what it is. Yeah. So then that would make pride the opposite. About yourself and others. That would make pride the opposite, which is essentially living a lie mm -hmm. um, where, where you believe something that is not true. Um, that, that, would, that would be a lie, and that would be which living a, a lie, delusion. which would be, yes, yes, yeah. yeah. So maybe that could be a, a, maybe a simple way of, of summing that up. But um, just If they say somebody is delusional, it's another way of saying there's something... Mental, mental illness involved, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. And it corresponds to exactly what you're saying. Yeah, and we definitely see that uh, everywhere today with the insanity. But um, just really quickly, if we could, Father, um, one, one more question. If you could just take uh, two minutes on, on this. Could you discuss how we, can, um, how we can practice humility in our homes today, specifically with our children? How can we teach humility to our children? Well, we have to set the example for humility. And that's hard when you're in authority. <clears throat> but, I mean, let's face it. If you have authority that is not tempered by charity, it becomes a tyranny. All authority has to actually come from God. And authority derived from God has to always be motivated by charity. God's authority itself is motivated by charity, by love. God created us to share his goodness and his love. And uh, so the authority that he has over us 
is really derived from his goodness and his love for which he made us. So uh, it is exercised to fulfill that goodness and that love within us. So, so it is with a parent. A parent's authority has to be motivated by genuine charity. You know, when a parent is um, upset with a child and becomes frustrated, angry, that is contrary to the, to the idea, well, I'm here to teach this child, and here I'm setting an example of being frustrated and angry. The child might actually get the message from the look in my face and the sound of my voice that I don't love this child. And so that I'm, what I'm saying and what I'm doing is not really an expression of my love for the child. Um, that doesn't mean that the parent has to treat the child with kit gloves and let the child do whatever it pleases. That would not be loving the child. The parent is there to instruct the child in what is right and good. And that involves uh, discipline, which involves, first of all, teaching. But sometimes the teaching also involves discomfort, you know, that there's a price to pay, responsibility for the damage you do. Uh, the child has to learn that too. And again, in teaching that, the child has to realize his parents are motivated by love for him. Because they, they want him to grow up and, uh, well, they want him to grow up, know love and serve God, and they want to save his soul. So uh, the child himself is actually learning humility and learning reality. The parents are the ones who are supposed to, primarily, above all others, the parents are the ones who are supposed to teach the children humility. They have to teach it by example to begin with. But they have to also humble the child, you know, as well. And I don't say humiliate the child. I say humble the child, which means bring the child into contact with reality in such a way that it is um, not meant to destroy, but meant to build the child will understand what he or she didn't understand before. That's a tremendous undertaking, certain. When the parent gives way to anger, it is antithetical to accomplishing that purpose. So the parent actually must be a thinking parent, not a feeling. Uh, well, feelings are one thing. But, uh, you know, when you give way to feelings, well, they can be very tender, they can be very angry. So the feelings have to be dominated by the thoughtfulness and rash reason. Uh, so right reason has to dominate the parent's um, approach to the child and instructing the child. The, the parent realizes that probably the most significant moments he or she has to instruct a child are the most difficult moments when there's a problem, right? Yep. And here is a teaching moment when I can convey a greater understanding of my child because there's a problem here. And we have to deal with it. We have to face it together. We have to solve it. Um, um, so, you know, it's it's um, parents can actually um, send kind of mixed signals to their children. They can be very loving, but also because of the results of original sin remaining within them, they too can give way to anger and be very frustrated. <laughs> uh, the children get very frustrated because there are children. They are children and they don't really understand how things work. And that lack of understanding can be very frustrating for a child. <clears throat> the parent is supposed to help the child understand and get past that. And the, the parent needs a great deal of humility 
in order to do that. Um, there are ways in which we manifest as adults our lack of humility. I think one of the one of the most damaging is this, Tom. I mean, since we're you know, so that question came up. And it's the way we re react and respond to each other. Uh, one of the things that we find um, happening to ourselves and others is that we, we're very quick to take offense. Um, say, well, that person just disrespected me, or that person, you know, um, uh, was angry at me, or that person uh, doesn't like me or doesn't care about me. No, maybe they don't. Um, maybe it's true, but all too often, we're not allowing for the fact that, okay, maybe some friend of mine uh, didn't smile at me when they saw me today. Maybe some friend or person turned away from me and went the other way. Or maybe a person answered me with a short answer. Or maybe they didn't acknowledge you know, my anniversary or whatever, uh, whatever it is. And we take offense at that so readily. But we know when it comes to ourself, ourselves, we know what it is to be tired. We know what it is to be preoccupied. We know what it is to be saddened by something that's happened. We know what it is to feel ill. And we know that those things affect us. And they affect how, how we come across to others. And so we will excuse ourselves. Okay, I'm sorry I wasn't the most um, cheery when I saw you, but I, I, I honestly I wasn't feeling well. Or I had this on my mind, and this was weighing heavily on me. We will take those excuses for ourselves. But when somebody doesn't give us the smile that we think they should, or hail fellow well met and they're happy to see us, or they seem to ignore us, why is it that the first thing we think is, oh, they're, they're not being charitable to me. They're being mean to me. Why don't we think, well, you know, that's not like them. They, they must not feel well. Or maybe they have the weight of their world on their shoulders and maybe there's just something that's distracting them. Or maybe they didn't get a good night's sleep last night. You know, any number of things that we know personally slow us down and alter our behavior. Why can't we just kind of give you the, the benefit of the doubt rather than just immediately assume, oh, you know, the worst, as it were, that uh, why aren't they treating me properly? I see this as more and more of a problem as time goes on, where people are misreacting to others because they immediately presume that what they do is a matter of malice and ill will. Rather than, and people, this is people they know or should know. They're so ready to, we're so ready to pull the trigger on that. Um, rather than just saying, okay, well, obviously they're, they're having a rough time, right? And uh, I mean, I'm here to help them if I can, but uh, maybe they're just in a situation where right now they, they don't want to be helped. <laughs> you just got to give them some space. But I'm certainly not going to assume that they're bad people or they have bad in, ill intent by that. I think that's, that's a, a very serious problem among traditional Catholics, honestly. And uh, I don't really have a remedy for that. Only grace is a remedy for that. But I just caution people against that. I caution people against that in the family because I see that happen between husbands and wives. 
I see that can happen between children and uh, parents too. And I would never want a parent to treat his child or her child in such a way that would give the child a reason to think my my daddy doesn't love me, my mommy doesn't love me. You know, I've just um, made them so angry that they forgot they they forgot that they love me. You know, um, I mean, what kind of anger would there be in a parent that should be so angry at a child that the, that the parent actually? seems to forget for a moment that this is someone he really loves and would protect. Um, But he just lashes out. Like, it's almost a momentary fit of madness, you know? (laughs) So, um, so parents have to be very, very wary of of letting that happen in the way they discipline their children. Um, I think they'll find their children respect them a lot more uh, and I think they'll uh, discover that uh, there's a lot of grace in that. It, it arises from a genuine humility in the family, the father recognizing his place, recognizing his weaknesses, and also depending on God for the strength necessary to be the best father he can be. I mean, what does a father aspire to but, but that, to be the best father he can be, or a, a woman in the family, a mother, wanting to be the best mother, the best mom she can be, right? When um, people get married, bring children to the world, that should be their aspiration because that's a vocation before God. That's their service to God, being the best husband and the best father they can be, the best wife and the best mother they can be. So in the family life, um, it's a matter of the um, mother and father learning the humility to accept the reality of what their vocation is and what God is calling them to do for him. Learning the humility to realize that it takes a superhuman power to do it. And that, yes, I, you know, they come before God with the weaknesses they have, and they need God's strength to be able to do this. They need greater wisdom than Solomon. And um, so they approach that in prayer. And humility will lead them to pray for the grace that they need of wisdom to raise the children. But as I say, that's also the prime lesson that they have to give their children because humility is the foundation of all the virtues. St. Augustine said that. He said, no matter what other apparent virtues proud man has, they are only uh, ephemeral and, and, and uh, the appearance of virtue is what he said. They can't be real virtues because his pride essentially makes it impossible to have any real virtue. Um, so a proud man may seem to be pure, may, will not do anything impure, but a proud man will not yield to impurity out of his own pride, not his love for God. It's just beneath him, right? Or a proud man uh, will be honest even to a fault because he considers it beneath him to lie. You know? He's doing it basically to, to uh, basically satisfy himself and reassure himself that he really is, well, 
a Pharisee, <laughs> what it comes down to, right? Uh, the Pharisees are the prime example. Their pride, just, it, it under, the pride undermined all the other virtues. St. Augustine made it very clear, it's impossible to have any real virtue of any kind uh, in a proud soul. So, you know, if you were to say, well, what is the one thing that I have to do to teach my child to begin with? Let's say, say teach my child the faith. Well, by all means, teach your child the faith. What about hope and charity? By all means, teach your children this. But you have to realize that unless you teach your child humility, true humility, by word and example, then none of these other virtues are going to have any real root. They can't strike any root in that hardened soil. They're like the, 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 the seed that falls on the rock. doesn't give at all. So uh, give your children the uh, example of humility in the way you talk about others in front of the child, in the way you talk to the child, in the way you, especially mothers and fathers, husbands and wives talking to each other, the way they handle, the way they treat each other with great consideration and great care and humility. That is, you know, the great lesson that will hopefully, um, you know, inculcate, inculcate the virtue of humility in their children too. Well, I don't know with all this, uh, all these words, it's really helped <laughs> at all. But uh, forgive me that. In all humility, I have to admit my inability to express this very well. <laughs> well, Father, thank you. Thanks for everything. Thanks for being here tonight. I appreciate your time, and I know all of our viewers do as well. So oh, God well, bless you. Thank you. Yep. God bless you all. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.